Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcast. In this episode, we will be exploring learning and the future of learning in the digital age. And I am delighted to welcome Feroz VR, Senior Vice President and Head of SAP Academy for Engineering, but not only, also an inclusion evangelist, thought leader, speaker, columnist, and an author, but we'll unpack all that later. First of all, Feroz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Susie. Such a delight speaking to you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So, Feroz, we were talking before the show and you were explaining to me your multiple hearts and your multiple passions in life. And there are so many areas we could clearly talk about. But I would like us to talk about learning and the future of learning in the digital age primarily. And I would also like to make it clear that although you are the Senior Vice President of the SAP Academy for Engineering, that here in this conversation, I'm talking to Feroz with your multiple hats (laughs) and your views are completely your own. Thank you. So, yeah, we share this passion for lifelong learning, for skills and creating more inclusive environments, particularly in the digital age. And it's hard to know where to start, but you've really helped me with this because your recent article, I would like to start there with that very mix of learning and digital and your article on chat GPT, which was entitled, What If GPT Wrote My Column? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is brilliant. And I love that article for its contents, but also, but also because it's the question for me yeah. as we move into this more sort of interconnected digital age of how do we humans co-create and coexist with technology? So let's start there. Could you walk our listeners through your three takeaways from the testing you went through with ChatGPT, which sounded just fascinating? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, anything to do with chat GPT gets a lot of readership. So it, yeah, it's, absolutely. Obvious, <laughs> it's obviously the top of everybody's mind. And mm. it was, it's something that fascinated me as well. Mm. But let me kind of unpack it in terms of what I was trying to achieve through mm. the Turing test. I looked at, you know, the history of, if you look at the history of mankind and the role that tools have played mm. in progressing human beings, it's fascinating to see that if you just look at, say, birds, animals, and human beings, and if you measure Mm. who can move from point A to point B the fastest, it'll be interesting to see that human beings actually fall right at the bottom. So a bird can move from point A to point B faster. An animal, if you take a tiger or a cheetah, can really run faster than human beings. Human beings actually come very low in terms Mm. of our ability to move from point A to point B. Mm. But the reason human beings have been extremely transformational is their ability to build tools. So as soon as you are able to build a wheel and then, say, use a bicycle, Mm. uh, human beings suddenly can move now as fast as a bird. And now if you see that we've moved and built aeroplanes and complex things, Mm. now we are faster than birds and animals. So... The reason human beings have made such incredible progress is their ability to make tools. Yeah. And so I looked at chat GPT, nothing but a tool, and really wanted to understand mm-hmm. what is the impact of chat GPT, especially in terms of future of work. And let me give you mm. maybe two or three separate examples to try to explain what I was trying to achieve. The first question is when I was growing up and, you know, that was a time when calculators became very popular. and mm. You know, so now there was this whole discussion, will calculators make human beings' ability to do maths good or bad, right? Um, You know, I could do a lot of Mm. calculations in my head because I was trained that way. Mm. 
as yeah, soon as you got a calculator, people said, huh, maybe human beings' ability to do mathematics may not be, may decrease over a period of time. Hmm. I don't know if that has happened, right? Uh, people still do maths. I, I don't know what your take is, Susie, but has our ability to do maths become worse because we now have a calculator or does I, it become better? I think, um, I think we practice less. Practice so we get lazy. So like yeah. any muscle or any brain pathway, if you don't use it, then you get yeah. out of practice and you get lazy. I think that's what's happened. I don't think we've got any less capable, but I think yeah. we don't use or exert that capability at all. Absolutely. So that's a, you know, one example. Then mm-hmm. if you look at, you know, the, when I used to travel in Europe, our one big skill that we need to have was to read a map. Yeah. Now with GPS, I think we've forgotten that art. I don't think nobody reads a map. I think only collectors buy maps now. Otherwise, everything yeah. is, is probably there, right? Yeah. So that's another tool. GPS mm. is not but a tool. Then I looked at something even more interesting, which was a digital camera. Okay. Now, a lot of people said, once you have a digital camera, photographers are no longer required because everybody's become a photographer, right? Which is not true, actually. Everybody mm. can take photographs. Yep. doesn't mean you are become a photographer. They're two completely different things. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So then I said, what is the impact of ChatGPT? Which is the industry that's going to get disrupted because of ChatGPT? And I'm a columnist. I write a biweekly column focusing on books. And so I said, can I do a Turing test to see if the machine ChatGPT can write my column? And the great thing about GPT is that it can actually copy your voice in the sense that if my columns are there, it can learn and know my style. And so I did a Turing test to see if I wrote my own column and I wrote the column, I had GPT to write my column and I sent it to my circle of friends. And it was interesting that in one degree of separation, people who knew me very well, they were able to guess, I would say 70% got it right, 30% got it wrong. Hmm. But with two degrees of separation with people who have not read my columns often Hmm. enough, it was actually 50-50, which means I could literally ask chat gpt to write my columns and people won't know about it that's quite scary i think that's quite a scary prospect (laughs) yeah it's a pretty scary prospect and so i think the area that will get disrupted i don't know in a positive or a negative way Mm. is really content writing so what is good is that for a lot of marketing professionals you can now just make the content yourself i think a lot of about 90 percent of the content you can use gpt and the rest, 10%, you can edit it to fit in your voice and your thoughts. Mm. That's going to be massively disruptive. Mm. What is clear to me, uh, Susie, is that it is without doubt the most disruptive technology for this generation. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of people have been talking about AI, but people didn't really understand what yeah. AI and its impact would be. But GPT made it absolutely clear that is super disruptive to the extent that Sam Altman, who is the founder mm. and CEO of OpenAI, just recently said he's just warning us of the power of this tool. So we don't know the unintended consequences of this technology. I think that's the, you know, you know there are as many opinions as people out there. Yeah. So, so we don't know what the long-term unintended consequences are. Yeah, and it also depends what the intention is, doesn't it? You, you know, unintended. But if you have an intention that is sort of to do something good in the world, great. Yeah. If you have an intention that is to do something less ethical or not as good in the world, 
the, the capability to do it is also there, isn't it? So this is something which can be debated. Now, if you look at all tools, and, and I give the example of social media, right? Mm. When social media burst into the scene, everybody said, this is so powerful and the intentions are good. Everybody, the founders said it is to you know connect everybody mm. in the world. But I think human beings are sometimes not capable of understanding that the world is so deeply interconnected yeah. that the secondary effects, the tertiary effects, we just don't know. Mm. And we should always be aware of it. So while mm. the intentions are always pure, mm. sometimes it's the unintended consequences that backfires. Yeah. If somebody had told that when social media was released, that democracy is at stake, people <laughs> wouldn't understand how mm. is that even possible. The mm. intentions were always pure. Mm. But eventually the unintended consequences of social media, if you look today, yeah, you know, mental absolutely. health, democracy, yeah, yeah. fake news mm. is extremely dangerous. So I think... Uh, nobody's questioned the intentions of mm. the people who build it. I think they're all well-meaning. Uh, they do the right stuff, mean the right things. But it's the secondary effects that we should be mm. very aware of. So I think the way I see it is that as a seeker of truth, and that's what I call myself as every learner should be a seeker of truth. Yeah. You should question everything. Uh, don't accept anything as the holy grail. You know, question everything mm. and be open enough to criticize what you think is not correct. Mm. Yeah, and getting curious about what's actually in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so tell us a bit more about what came out of your testing then. <laughs> so what came out of my testing? I think uh, there were a few interesting insights. Mm. The first one, which was actually surprising, and I actually got it wrong. When we were talking about AI, we said, or most people believe that it will be the creative things that will get disrupted the last. You know, creative yeah. things yeah. is art, is writing, and so on. But actually, if you see, just with ChatGPT, a lot of my writing friends are now concerned. They're like, do we have a place for writers anymore? That's number one. Mm. If you look at Dal E, you know, people are asking, is there a place for artists? Because what Dal E does is you can just say, can you make an artwork that a pig is flying in air and yeah. in the middle of uh, surrounded by jungles and birds around in no mm. time it will mm. do the art for you so the first thing that we i think many of us got it wrong is that we said it's the mechanical task which will get disrupted first and the creative tasks will get disrupted the last but the truth is the other way around the creative task has got disrupted way faster and you still need human beings to do basic stuff like uh, packaging of goods. You still need people to mm. use hands to do that. You know, I was just talk thinking about it. You know, I have uh, I have a problem. You know, because of the rains in California, I have a leak in my in my home. I still need to call a human being to fix that to come and fix it. <laughs> yeah, if you need to do plumbing, you still need human mm. beings to mm. come and do it. So some of those manual things. Uh, will get disrupted the last. That's the first insight. The second insight is really about the future of work. So a lot of parents come and ask me, what should I teach my children so that they are relevant 10 years from now? Because a lot of us mm. don't know what we are teaching today. Will it be relevant 10 yeah. years from now? Mm. And my shortest answer is that eye contact jobs will always remain or will be the last one to get disrupted. And the easiest example is really elderly care or yeah. special needs care. And I see that I have a special needs uh, son. And 
the hourly rates are off the roof. Yeah. Because there is a huge demand and the supply is less. So any form of care and the way to really simplify that is really eye contact jobs. So the easiest way to tell that is where there is an eye contact required will be the last one to get disrupted. Yeah, because it's like the human connection. That's the human connection. connection. Yeah. Mm. And the last thing is really about is can AI be sentient, which means will it have sense like human beings? And that's really the dangerous part. Mm. And that's getting into uncharted territory. And, you know, there was a lot of recent uh, write-ups that some of the AIs could actually start having senses and feelings. And for me, that's getting into dangerous territory. Mm. If machines can sense, if they can empathize, then you don't know where you are leading to. I think that's like the final frontier and hopefully we don't get there. I mean, I feel like asking you, and do you think that's probable, but you don't have an answer to that, but you do have your opinion. Do you think that's probable for us? Yeah, I, th- I mean, you know what? I it, It's fascinating that if you're a technologist, you really understand what is behind these tools. Mm. And actually, I think it is possible. It is possible... And the way I see it is, you know, the most powerful people are behind building some of these tools. So we just underestimate the the resources that are being put in, both in terms of intellectual horsepower, in terms of financial resources that you're putting into trying to Mm. all these. I wouldn't rule that out at all, Susie. It It is possible, but I hope, you know, the biggest challenge, Susie, that I find is that the ethics around AI yeah. is not moving as fast as the AI and the tools itself. So that's the challenge. I think if you don't put guardrails, it can go mm. out of hand. It is the challenge. And as you've just said, and I was thinking as you were explaining, you know, the concentric circles and the effect of social media. Yeah. And that's what I meant with well-intentioned and not well-intentioned is when people yeah. start to understand, because yeah. it is an unknown today, isn't it? That, and then the ethics is is coming last almost in terms of formalization and, and things like that. But it, yeah. it brings me to an article that I read that you co-authored on the fact the need to actually upskill people and train people in more human-centered skills as well as yeah. just, and I don't mean just as it's not it's not yeah. important, but as well as therefore coding and robotics yeah. and AI, as well as sort of harder digital skills, more technical uh, digital yeah. skills. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because if I hear now and I'm thinking, because I've always said to myself, oh, yeah, we need to scale empathy. We need to scale the what keeps us human in organizations to sort of bridge the gap between digital and human. If we're now saying that machines could sense and and could sort of start feeling and doing, let's put it under the label of empathy, although it's not quite that black and white. Yeah. You know, it makes it even more important, the discussion that I read in your in your article around, you know, putting out a platform and um, scaling the teaching and upskilling of those skills. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision for that? Yeah. You know, one of the things we asked a very fundamental question at the SAP Academy for Engineering is what is what does a future engineer look like? You know, what is the persona of a future mm. engineer? What is the best definition of who could be a future engineer. And we tried to ask this to a lot of questions. And we were very fortunate that one of our advisors is Wind Surf, who's the father of the internet, you know, who's whom I think is probably one of the greatest engineers. And we asked him, what does the engineer of the future look like? And it was fascinating. He said, Firoz, 
the engineer of the future is the same as the engineer of the past. There oh, is wow. no, uh, no difference. And what he meant was at a very fundamental level, and this is really going to first principles mm. thinking, who is a good engineer? Uh, and, and I think if you look at what are the characteristics of a good engineer, I think that hasn't changed. Mm. I would say it is number one is curiosity, right? Mm. Uh, do you have a curious mind uh, is the fundamental question. The second is, are you humble enough? Humility is such a fundamental characteristics of being a learner. Is, is the ability to say, mm. I don't know enough. The world is vast and I can be wrong is, mm. is so important. And the third, which I think is the most important, is practice. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you become good at something only by practicing it. Mm. Now, that hasn't changed. Now, you can have great tools, but the fact that curiosity, humility, and practice is the fundamental of becoming a lifelong learner hasn't changed at all. The tools have changed. Mm. The access to information has changed. So that's the first interesting insight. But the second interesting thing that we learned is that most engineers are taught the hard skills. Yes. How do you become better at coding? Mm. And our insight was it is the soft skills, which is as important as the hard skills and the soft skills can be taught as well. Mm. So two fundamental insights is that, you know, we say that you get hired for your hard skills, but you get promoted for your soft skills. Okay. Mm -hmm. And nobody teaches soft skills, especially yeah. in an engineering setup. We are like, yeah. oh, these are the geeks. They're not good at soft skills. Mm -hmm. We don't have to teach them, which is not true. Our, no, belief is, our belief is that soft skills, whether it is empathy, whether it's compassion, whether it's providing, you know, being vulnerable, mm. whether it's providing radical candor, oh. all of them can be taught. Yeah. Just like hard skills. Or just like and, curiosity and, and humility and that we have innately when we're younger, a lot younger. Yes. <laughs> but this can be taught. And so yes. a, a big focus of what we do at the academy is not just talk about the hard skills, but also talk about the soft skills. And also we've proved that over a period of time, if you practice it long enough, you can also build muscle memory for empathy. So that's been the core idea that we needed to build full, complete professionals mm. who also have not just the hard skill to solve complex problems, but also have the soft skills to maneuver complex mm. human feelings. Mm. That is what we were trying to do at the Academy. Fascinating and brilliantly exciting project. I, I've got two questions around that. So the first one would be, you know, what does that mean for leadership? Yeah. And the way leadership development has been constructed to date and is taught today, because it's essentially not necessarily that balanced in terms of sort of emotional intelligence and um, yeah. and IQ. Yeah. And the second one will be what, how early do you think these skills should be put into education? But let's go back to leadership first. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've been researching a lot on leadership and mm. sometimes I jokingly say that there are more books on leadership than actual leaders itself. So, <laughs> you know, everybody yeah. seems to have a point of view on leadership. And we should I have, ask I like... Chat GPT, yeah? You're so right. You know, it's, it's fascinating. Somebody just did uh, a research on how many books are there with, the title leadership, and it runs into millions of them. So everybody yeah. seems to have a point of view. Mm. Now, there are probably a couple of timeless principles around leadership, which I'd like to share. The first is a true leader is really a storyteller. Yeah. yeah okay. Absolutely. But, you know, nobody talks about storytelling in any program. 
nobody teaches storytelling. If you look, the first skill that human beings develop is to tell a story. If you look at when man was living in a cave, mm. uh, we drew on the walls. What yeah. were we trying to do? We were just trying to tell a story, right? So I think a good leader is a storyteller and storytelling should be an integral part of every program in the world. It doesn't matter what you are. If you're not able to tell a story, you'll not be successful. You'll not be able to inspire people. You'll not have people wanting to follow you. So that's the first skill that you need to build. However, the skill that is required right now in the world that we live in is to find connections between seemingly disconnected things. Because we live in such a connected world, you know, you change one thing and one end, you have a completely different impact on the others. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the <clears throat> so the ability to understand the context of the world that we live in and the context mm. is the key and to make connections between seemingly disconnected things is such a fundamental need of a good leader mm. so a good leader is not somebody who's just good at one technical ability or one uh, business knowledge i think he needs to be holistic he will be at the intersection of science and humanities of business mm. and technology and so you need to know a lot more because once you have a broad sense of knowledge, you will be able to make those connections mm. happen. So uh, so that's the second important thing what I see is leaders need. And the last thing, which is again based on the research that I'm doing right now, Susie, mm. is leadership is, uh, is eventually a decision. Yeah. So, yeah, people often think, oh, are leaders born? Can they be trained? I said leadership is nothing but the decision that you make that... I want to lead. I want to do this because I absolutely believe in that. And, you know, most leaders were very mediocre until they found their defining moment and until they decided to lead. Mm. So that's that's a key mm. insight for me that leadership is nothing but the decision that an individual makes. And as simple as that. Mm. But it's linked to curiosity, isn't it? Because those oh, yeah. moments come from you know, those connecting moments when you're like, oh, and, and you know, without going into all the buzzwords of purpose and authenticity, it, it is that yeah. moment when you decide that yeah. you're going to do something bigger than you. You're going to, you know, impact other people. You're going to create communities. You're going to do it because you believe in it and because you think that that is for the collective good. And I think that's what I was thinking about when you were saying curiosity, humility, but that's quite hard, isn't it, to keep very. afloat if you like in organizations that are very driven and of course I understand why they're driven by business results and by delivery and everything else but you know it doesn't necessarily stimulate that part of the brain and it's not necessarily rewarded is it so in terms of you know your academy vision yeah can you tell us a little bit about how you would leverage that because I think right. it's probably everybody every leader's question of I understand it intellectually and yeah. maybe emotionally but how do I get there very good question. So this is what, when we were building the academy, the first question we wanted to ask, and we took months to figure this out, is mm. what do we teach in the first place? Because if you look, content is free. It's fully democratic, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, when you and me were probably growing up, you still needed some resources to buy your book. You need to have mm. a certain financial status to have access to information. Today, all you need is an internet connection. Yeah. Right. That's all you need. Yeah. If you have a broadband connection, well, you have all the information that you need at your fingertips. So why do you need to teach anything in the first place? 
I think the greatest tool for learning is YouTube, uh, without mm-hmm. doubt. It's one mm-hmm. thing that has democratized learning like nobody's business, right? Mm-hmm. If you look, you know, if you want to cook and find a recipe, there are millions of yeah. recipes. Anybody can cook. Yeah. My son right? does it regularly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the one thing that I say to people often is you cannot learn swimming by watching a YouTube video. Mm. If you want to learn swimming, you have to jump into the water and swim. It Mm. is as simple as that. Mm. So the fundamental thing that we realized that we need to solve is, number one is curiosity, right? Mm. Uh, Because there's so much of information out there that all you need is curiosity. And our question was, can you teach curiosity? Okay. (laughs) If you can teach curiosity then it's done. Then there's mm. no problem uh, because I, I, all the answers are out there. Of course. And so our core thesis, Susie, was that the only thing that people need to learn is to ask difficult questions. Yes. The answers are out there. It's the questions that matter. And if you are able to trigger people into interesting questions then you have triggered curiosity. And I'll give you a simple example. Mm. And I call it, you know, framing a question with a gap. Okay, if you understand, if you can frame a question where there is a gap, it will automatically trigger an interesting question. And then you want to know the answer, right? So a classic example was during COVID, when COVID happened uh, during the, you know, during, during its peak, and India actually had a lot of, a lot of deaths happening per day. Mm. But it was funny that actually the cemeteries were actually seeing a decline in deaths. So people were confused. Why is it that more people are dying because of COVID, but there are less number of people who are coming to the cemetery? Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, wow, that's an interesting question. Why is that? And then people realized the answer was so fascinating that India has the highest number of road accidents in the world. Now, because of COVID, there was complete lockdown. So there was actually no road accidents. Wow. Okay. So what happened was, I think the, I don't remember the exact number, but on an average, 3,500 people die on road accidents in India every day. Wow. Okay. Now, because of COVID, there was, that became zero. And the number of deaths in COVID was thousands. So you were still seeing a significant less number of people dying. Now, what was interesting was the question. The gap was interesting. Mm. Why is it that more people are dying of COVID, but less number of people are overall, you know, dying? Mm. And until you know the fact that India has the highest number of road accidents, you wouldn't, you wouldn't figure that out. Mm. Now, that's a fascinating way to frame a question. As soon as you frame an interesting question, everybody is like curious to know, oh, I need to know what the answer is. And you will only know the answer if you understand the broader context. Mm. Mm. That there are so many other factors because of which, you know, some unfortunate incidents can happen. So that's a classic example of understanding the context and framing the question in an interesting manner. So the one thing we teach, teach people is what we call as first principle thinking. Can you go to the lowest first principle thinking of any problem? Give me any problem. And will you be able to go to the root cause of the problem and ask a question 
and so that you can get the answer going upwards. If you can teach that skill, hmm. you don't need to teach any other, uh, you know, you know, coding skills can all be learned on YouTube. But yes. the ability to ask those hard questions hmm. becomes much more profound than getting easy answers. Yeah, powerful questions, sort of inquiry questions, which which brings me to the second major skill that we've already touched on, like critical systems thinking. Yeah. yeah. How does that, what you've just said, asking powerful questions and curiosity, how does that lead into the lens of critical systems thinking? And do you think we need to intentionally and actively teach that to leaders? Absolutely. I mean, You know, we've been, and as I said, we've been fortunate to have Windsurf as one of our advisors, mm. and he's probably the greatest engineer alive in mm. terms of having built the internet. Yeah. And so when we asked him, what are those skills we would teach? His answer was consistent and profound. Uh, and we've asked him like every, every quarter we ask him this question, and he says it's the same thing. First, teach first principles thinking. Ask people to ask the right questions. Mm. Second, Teach them to think in systems because you have you live in such an interconnected world that every solution you create has is a multi-link solution because it will have effects across the world. So if you're not thinking in systems, you're creating solutions that can have unintended consequences. That's the second thing. The third is the ability to build complex architecture in one page. In one page. He said, any problem that I gave you, can you build an architecture of that in a single page? You know, it's fascinating that when he designed the internet, he built it in one page. The entire design of the internet was built in one page. And actually that page is still kept in in Palo Alto here. It's fascinating. The entire architecture of the internet is in one page. Mm. And he says, that's what a great engineer can do is to build very complex systems, but show it in very simple ways. And the last thing he said is that while everybody speaks about innovation because it's the cool thing, it's the sexy thing to speak about, he says the one thing that good engineers do is they often think about maintenance, which is the boring stuff, right? If you build a house and you have a roof leak, then you haven't thought through the how how to build something. So always think about maintenance maintaining a system because systems live for hundreds of years they do and they evolve don't they particularly human systems and and it brings me to this you know the sort of exploit and execute thing around business as usual and innovation cultures having to coexist in an organization and that's quite a leadership challenge as well really, really in itself in terms of you have somebody who's sort of in this get it done execution and then somebody else who's looking always to explore and ask inquiry questions yeah which i think is quite difficult but i think i know also that you work a lot on inclusion and it's one yeah. of my favorite subjects around but i see a big link between conscious inclusion yeah. and the skill set that goes with conscious inclusion and innovation and yeah. this critical systems thinking so essentially looking at both how you innovate but also how you scale yeah. Um, the effects of that. Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about if you see a link between inclusion and the yeah. skill sets around inclusion and yeah. um, innovation and leadership? You know, it's a very fascinating question, Susie, but it's also very complex. And tr- let me try to unpack because inclusion as a word itself is, mm-hmm. means so many different things to mm-hmm. so many different people, mm-hmm. right? And I recently, you know, I was interviewed and I said, inclusion is a mindset. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, uh, people tend to 
box inclusion as uh, you know race and gender and uh, abilities yeah. and and so many things and i say it's ultimately a mindset hmm. inclusion is a mindset in terms of can i respect you for who you are hmm. and be open enough to invite you to bring the best skills you have hmm. that's all it is it's just yeah. a mindset right hmm. so let me share a little uh, you know some thoughts about inclusion from a learning point of view yes absolutely so uh, and i looked at some fascinating data if you look at if you go back maybe 100 years ago suzy and if you look at learning i think around in the year 1900 only 20% of the world was literate mm-hmm. okay and today that number is 87% Mm-hmm. 87% of the world's population is literate which means they need to read and write and think on mm-hmm. for themselves what has happened why has that changed because in the 1900s learning was seen as a elite activity only the rich would mm-hmm. learn or the one who thought had was supposed to be just brilliant you have to be born brilliant to learn now i think learning has become extremely democratic mm-hmm. uh, today anybody can learn there are no you know and that's what technology and tools have done the second is we believe that the potential of every human being can be maximized because mm-hmm. of access to information so mm-hmm. i think the world has become truly more inclusive in that sense from a learning point anybody and everybody can learn mm-hmm. so what is the problem i think the biggest problem today is the rate at which things are changing changing mm-hmm. and there's a whole set of people who are left behind mm-hmm. now when i look who are the people who are left behind from a purely technology and digital perspective one is the elderly people mm-hmm. right now people who are above a certain age uh, and i include say for my parents who are old mm-hmm. they just can't understand how to use a complex technology it's just much harder for them because mm-hmm. they were not digital native for them they are scared of technology so yeah. we have a whole population i would say above a certain age who had no access to technology when they were growing up mm. and they are kind of excluded from participating in the power of technology so mm. that's one whole group mm. and the other is really marginalized communities mm. who just don't have access mm. even though internet is prevalent there's a still a significant population who have no access to technology and i call that the digital divide right okay. there's a whole set of people who have digital mm. access and then there's a whole set of people who don't now because the rate of change of technology is so fast these people are completely left behind in the progress that we are making and that's mm. what we should be very careful about that the marginalized communities are not included Mm. in the rate of change of technology so it's not change that is a problem i think it's the speed of change that is a problem mm. and i i agree because we change a lot slower than the exponential speed of technology but also from the leadership perspective yeah for me it's around changing so i'm back to your questions of curiosity humility and be, and being able to step back and see somebody else's perspective although it's simple yeah. to say so you know the sort of around creating inclusion and I'll put it specifically in the workplace context so leadership within within the organization of you know there are also key skills to democratize access in the organization to yeah. talent programs to leadership programs to basic coaching skills to an understanding of what is sometimes put in programs just for elite groups within the organization so 
Um, yeah. I remember reading quite a lot of your things on inclusion and thinking, yeah, this is also around having the humility and the curiosity to take a step back from oneself constantly yeah. and to yeah. say, okay, let's take my team. Where's the hidden potentials? Where's the gap? <laughs> to come back to yeah. what you were saying. And I, and I think, you know, that's where I link inclusion and learning in terms of inclusive leadership yeah. and to pull it up you know, to pull it away from the differences in diversity, but also to what makes us the same. So we, we all want to connect, we all want to belong, we all want to be heard and valued and listened to. Yeah. But clearly that isn't the case today for lots of reasons. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to see how you integrate that into the academy programs, if you do that intentionally, explicitly or not. Yeah. So we do a lot of things very explicitly. So one mm. of the guiding principles when we started the academy was to have a 50-50 gender mix, okay. which is, yeah. uh, you know, which may sound very simple, <laughs> but if you don't do it in a mm. very thoughtful manner, mm. you can go around, go around a different path. So we yep. said everything from not just the engineers who come to the program, of course, sometimes we do have a challenge because you may not necessarily have a 50-50 yes. because it's a system level change, but mm. are you thoughtful about it? right? It's the same thing about having the right gender mix for the teachers and the mm. professors. And mm. we complete, one, one day I realized, why are all the people who are delivering the content male? And we said, oh, no, maybe that was a blind spot. We need to change that, right? Mm. So being able to do it in a thoughtful manner is very important. And you know that I've been passionate about disabilities. And yeah. it, it's fascinating to see that 15% of the world's population have some form of disability. Mm. But disability hasn't been mainstreamed at all no no you no. know I, in, when i look at my classes i don't have any disabled people in my class and mm. i'm like the world population is 50 percent, but that's not representing in my classroom mm. neither is it in the people who teach so i think uh once you understand it you also have to be very thoughtful about executing it without trying to make it seem like okay you're putting a quota and all of that i, yes, I don't think yes. people want to do that people no. want to say by doing this i'm adding value yes and i'm getting different perspectives and getting different insights and that is good for the collective but it takes a little bit time to for people to understand that hmm. it's a completely different lens isn't it yeah. But for me, it's one that sits very well on top of critical systems thinking. It is. And it is. curiosity yes. and humility. So that's why I was very interested in how explicitly you you wove it into your programs or not. Yeah. Time is running, but I do have a couple more questions. My first one is, what is the last thing you learned, <laughs> Feroz, and what did you do with it? Because I know you're a voracious learner and that <laughs> lifelong learning is part of what yeah. keeps you motivated and alive in inverted commas. Yeah. You know, one of the advantages of being a columnist, Susie, is that you are constantly researching new topics, yeah. new content. So you're forced to learn. In fact, sometimes, mm. uh, in fact, last year, I remember, you know, I write a biweekly column and I told my editor, this is too much work. Can I do it once a month instead of twice a month? Because, you know, you just have oh, to yeah, it's a lot, a lot more. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of work to put original content out there. But I also saw it the other way around because I have to do two columns, I am forced to research and learn new topics. Mm. So it, it kind of, it's kind of a positive pressure that you put <laughs> pressure on yourself to learn. So the last co the column that I'm writing, I will share this because this is pretty recent. Uh, as you can see with all the books behind me, I've yeah. been a, a lover <laughs> of books for many years. One of the interesting things that I found 
was something called pop-up books. And, you know, even though I've been researching and studying books, I really didn't understand what is a pop-up book. And then mm. I then I really tried dig, dig, digging deep inside. And I realized that pop-up books have a long history of what is called as paper engineering. So okay. if, you look, uh, if you look at a book, a book is seen as a three-dimensional object, right? Yeah. Uh, but a pop-up book is a four-dimensional object, which means if you open a book, things will not just pop up, but it will move. And these books were something which we learned when I was a kid. You know, yeah. kids have these yeah. pop-up books. Yeah, we have but them. Now yeah. you have incredible pop-up books, which are complex. You know, I'll, I'll show you something because I have it right here and I'm researching on that. Here is an entire pop-up book on Harry Potter, right? So for uh, those of you just listening, uh, Feroz is holding up um, a pop-up guide to Hogwarts, Harry Potter. Yeah, Brilliant. You, okay, I've never seen and, that. And if you just open this. Wow. So complex. Yeah, it is so yeah. complex. Now, what fascinated me was the engineering involved. Mm. Now, Strangely. how do you produce a book? So you need paper engineers. You know, I've been an engineer. I didn't know that there, there's somebody called paper engineer yeah. because the hard part of the book, Susie, is not the opening. It is the closing of the book. When you open it, things pop out. But when you close it, it has to fit in perfectly. And it's a very complex paper engineering technique. So, you know, I, speak, I spoke to Matthew Reinhardt, who is actually the paper engineer who made this Harry Potter book. I spoke to Ellen Rubin, who's kind of called the pop-up lady, who spent okay. years trying to research on pop-up books. So the current thing that I learned is paper engineering um, <laughs> and how pop-up books are produced. And it's just fascinating. Uh, and so I think that's one of the latest things I learned, uh, Susie. Brilliant. And it is fascinating. And my next question is curious. What are you going to do with that learning? You know, I, I think the... The most interesting element of learning is sharing. Yeah. Okay? And that's why I write. I write mm. so that I can share. Mm. And I think when you share, it multiplies uh, infinitely, right? Mm. I mean, it, I, I say the best example is if you have uh, $1 and you want to give 50 cents to somebody, you are left with 50 cents and the other person get 50 cents. But when it comes to learning, when you share, Actually, nothing reduces on your side, but everybody else gets the same information that you just shared. Hmm. So I think the most important <clears throat> element of learning is sharing. If you have learned something and not shared, it's actually useless. Absolutely. And it's, that's exactly why I do my podcast. So I love thank that you for, last thought. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you do, Susie, because <laughs> I think podcasts are such powerful tools yeah. to share knowledge insights mm. and so on so mm. and that's why anytime i learn something i write it down i share it wherever i can and maybe that's the biggest upside of social media is yeah. that you can reach a lot of people through social media but this is where i always say that do not use social media to promote yourself use social media to promote ideas yeah, and to share impact and, and it learning. Is, it yeah. is incredibly useful if you share ideas mm. because it mm. has a massive amplifying effect. Mm. Right? But mm. a lot of people actually use it for the exact opposite. Yeah. They're all talking about how good they are and yeah. what they're doing. It really has not much, not, not much meaning to mm. others. But mm. if you share knowledge, it's very powerful. So in, uh, in keeping with sharing knowledge, then my final question has to be, what is your final 
either call to action or piece of knowledge that you would like to share with our listeners who are listening, thinking, okay, I'm going to start thinking differently about the future of learning in my environment, whether that's a community or an organization or a charity or a governmental institution. Maybe I'll try to, uh, I'm just thinking while I'm talking, Susie, so so I'm kind of collecting my thoughts here. Mm. But let me tell you some fundamental truths about learning. The first is, in today's world, the only way to remain relevant is to be a lifelong learner. Yeah. Okay. That's the only way to remain relevant is to be a lifelong learner. Mm. So everybody has to aspire to be a lifelong learner. That's the Mm. first one. The purpose of learning is the search for truth. Okay. Uh, People often ask, why do you have to learn? Is it to get a job? No, no, no. The Mm. purpose of learning is the search for truth. What is the truth? If you're searching for the truth, you will grow. Mm. The way to search for the truth is always to ask the hard questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I always ask my team the hard questions. Why are we doing this? Mm. Why is this even important? Should we even exist? Are we relevant? Mm. Always ask the hard, hard questions. And maybe the final maybe takeaway is that if you are a seeker, which means if you're a true seeker, I think the possibilities are infinite. Mm. Excellent. So I'm going to leave our listeners with that definition of lifelong learning, but also that invitation to ask different questions and go and seek out something different as well. Okay, Feroz, thank you so much for coming and sharing your stories, your insights, your research and what you write about. Where can people find out more about you and what you do on all these multiple subjects? So I actually write in multiple platforms. Mm. Uh, the easiest way to know about me is to go to my website. It is ferozvr.com. Okay. I'm also there on Twitter, which I normally use as a means to read news. I don't mm-hmm. tweet too often, okay. but I do write. I have uh, Feroz VR on Medium, so I write a lot of my thoughts. I also write on Indian Express, and you know you can do a search and to see all my biweekly columns. I'm also active on LinkedIn, but if there's one place you need to look out what I, all the things that I've done, it is ferozvr.com. Okay, super. And I will add that address in the show notes so that people can access it. But I, I said I wasn't going to ask a fine, uh, another question, but I am now after that. I, I have to ask you, can you share with us how you find time to do all that? Because particularly in the digital age, you know, we're on 24-7 everybody time is everybody's most precious resource and i'm sure the biggest challenge so you know if you could share with us just as a sort of final thought how you manage your time to do all that i think there are i mean this is also Susie, the most frequently asked question to me that yes i can imagine (laughs) how are you able to do so many different things i think there are maybe two insights to this the Mm. one is the hardest task in today's time is to separate the noise from the signal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think my friend used the word pixelated madness. <laughs> I like we that. are we are living in a world mm. of overwhelming digital, you know, influence. So we need mm. to be extremely careful of how to remove the noise from the signal. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, reduce your reduce your social media uh, the time you spend so the only way to get time unfortunately there are only 24 hours and that's the same for everyone so Mm. reduce the things that 
uh, drain you and focus on the things that matter. So the first thing is surround yourself with good people and good books. Ignore everything else. Okay, that's the yeah, first rule. I like that. The second yeah. rule is not to see everything as different tasks. So people think that, oh, am I a columnist? Am I an SAP executive? Am I a you know a teacher at Columbia? Am I a social activist with my disability work? And I say they are one and the whole. I don't mm. see them as five different things. I see them as one, and I see them as deeply interconnected. And I say it's like having a full course meal, right? You, yeah. you have you have your starters, you have your soup, and you have your appetizers. You have your meal course, you have your dessert. There's just one meal, mm. and they may just be cooked differently, but uh, they all fulfill you. I, I see learning as a full body experience, you know, using all your senses and learning is not just about intellectual growth. It's about spiritual growth. It is about, uh, you know, physical growth, emotional growth. I think it has to be seen as a full body experience. So that's, you know, that's all I tell people don't see them as different compartments. But most important thing is to remove unnecessary things from your life. Surround yourself with people who are better than you because then they do a lot of work for you. Yeah. <laughs> a lot more time. Yeah. <laughs> so I've yeah. been fortunate to have outstanding people around me, Susie, who do a lot of heavy lift, but you don't see them. Mm. And so people think I am doing all the work, which is not true. Uh, a lot of the work is done by some outstanding people around me. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you again for a great conversation. Thank you, Susie. All the best to you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights and learning it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm-hmm.